This is Truth With Grace, the media ministry of Grace Baptist Church. We're so pleased you've joined us today as we continue our exploration of the truth found in God's Word and the grace of salvation. Pastor Pierre Rosa is continuing his preaching from the Gospel of Matthew, and today we're in chapter 26. Matthew is describing the last few hours before the crucifixion. After leaving the upper room, Jesus and the disciples go to the Garden of Gethsemane. Here, the disciples fail him. They can't even stay awake while Jesus prays. Then, Judas completes his betrayal and hands Jesus over to the authorities. And Peter fails Jesus by trying to save the Savior. And finally, all of the remaining disciples abandon Jesus. But God is not surprised, and God has a plan that makes all of this disappointment a triumph of redemption. My name is Brian Schmidt, and I'll have more information for you at the end of this program. But for now, let's listen to today's message from Pastor Pierre. Follow along with me. We're going to read Matthew 26, verses 47 to 56. While he was still speaking, behold, Judas, one of the twelve, came up, accompanied by a large crowd with swords and clubs, who came from the chief priests and elders and the people. Now he who was betraying him gave them a sign, saying, Whomever I kiss, he is the one. Seize him. Immediately Judas went to Jesus and said, Hail, Rabbi, and kissed him. And Jesus said to him, Friend, do what you have come for. Then they came and laid hands on Jesus and seized him. And behold, one of those who were with Jesus reached and drew out his sword and struck the slave of the high priest and cut off his ear. Then Jesus said to him, Put your sword back into its place, for all those who take up the sword shall perish by the sword. Or do you not think that I cannot appeal to my father and he will at once put at my disposal more than twelve legions of angels? How then will the scriptures be fulfilled which say that it must happen this way? At that time Jesus said to the crowds, Have you come out with swords and clubs to arrest me as you would against a robber? Every day I used to sit in the temple teaching and you did not seize me. But all this has taken place to fulfill the scriptures of the prophets. Then all the disciples left him and fled. So we are going to divide the scene here in order to better understand it by the reaction of the disciples, which seems to be the flow of the text here. And keep in mind, we're identifying here the sovereignty of God, the obedience of Jesus, and the reliability of Scripture. But first of all, the first part of the scene is the audacity of the foe, verses 47 through 50. Now Matthew advances the passion narrative by describing the last few moments that Christ had with the disciples before the resurrection. The arresting entourage here that Matthew describes is led by Satan-possessed Judas, remember, the betrayer. And that whole group was made of officers from the chief priests and the Pharisees, according to John 18, verse 3. And because the Sanhedrin manipulated the Roman authorities into thinking that Jesus presented a threat to the state, they had to request a Roman cohort. Now, a Roman cohort consisted of 600 soldiers, which was one-tenth of a legion. Now, keep in mind that the religious leaders wanted to avoid a riot. Remember Matthew 26, verse 5. That is why they had to recruit officers from the state there. Now, when you add the temple guard, the elders and servants of the priests, this crowd here could have easily have collected more than a thousand men. I mean, this is the definition of overkill. Perhaps this large crowd here represents the world's hatred for Christ. That's the immediate application that we draw from looking at this scene here. Opponents of the gospel 
will come to Christ, not in humility, but prepared to strip him of his divinity, as if that were even possible. They don't carry clubs or daggers. They have pens. They have keyboards and their wicked tongues. And every time they write or utter a negative word about Jesus in his church, they join this mob here in trying to kill the Son of God. But look at the antagonist of this scene. I told you there's a protagonist, and that's Christ. Obviously, he's the protagonist of the entire Bible. But in this particular scene, the antagonist is Judas. Now, he gave the captors here the cue, a kiss, the traitor's kiss. This is a mouth of Satan. Because remember, Satan had entered Judas in the upper room, and Judas left because Jesus said, well, go do what you got to do. And now here comes the traitor possessed by Satan and giving the ultimate sign of defiant hypocrisy. Now, this prearrangement that Judas had with the arresting party here needed to happen because not everyone in the Sanhedrin or the Roman guard knew what Jesus looked like. He looked like a regular guy. He didn't have any distinguished divine features. The traitor followed in a protocol for closeness, for affection and respect. This was a common way to greet rabbis during that time, except for you were not supposed to speak first. If you are a Jewish learner during that time and you ran into your rabbi, you would have to wait for the rabbi to give you the greeting first. So Judas is being defiant here. He is breaking protocol by saying, Hail, Rabbi, and going to Jesus and kissing him. Again, the kiss was a, this is a different culture than our culture today. This was a very common for men to kiss each other on the, on the cheek as a sign of affection and closeness and respect. Nevertheless, all of this happened as scheduled by the decree of God at the exact time that God had predetermined that this would happen. Remember, Jesus is in control here. He's in control even of his arrest. He's not a victim of the mob or of mob violence here. But this doesn't diminish the profane, abominable act of the betrayer. But listen, ironically here, Jesus' identification of Judas as a friend did not communicate endearment. This was more of a, hey fella, or um, hi there, partner, if Jesus was from Texas. But this is not a term of endearment. This is not sarcasm, but a calm, controlled response to the ugliest case of backstabbing in history. And he did it not only to highlight his meekness, but also because you will remember from last week that the Father had strengthened Christ, according to Luke 22, verse 43, when he was in his darkest moment of agony, sweating drops of blood, the Father sent an angel to comfort Jesus Christ. So this was post-prayer, post-comforting from the Father reaction here. So he models that meekness guided by the peace that transcends all understanding. And the good news is that that peace is available to you and me. He says it in, his, in the Gospels, that my peace I give to you, not as the world gives, but this is the kind of peace that is available for those of us who are in Christ. The world may be falling apart, but we enjoy the peace of God, and we can't even explain it because it transcends understanding. He models that for us here. And listen, Luke points out that Jesus asked the betrayer rhetorically, Are you betraying the Son of Man with a kiss? That's in Luke 22, verse 48. This is not a request for information. This is evidence that Judas will have to face in the great white throne judgment to spend eternity in hell. That question will ring in his mind for eternity. So that's the purpose of that question. And also, I want you to see that by doing this, Jesus gave his fake friend here an opportunity to repent. He's addressing his conscience. And check this out. He would have forgiven his enemy 
How do we know that, church? Because he instructed Peter not long before that to forgive your offender 70 times 7. Do you think Jesus wouldn't have been able to forgive Judas? But again, this is speculative because it had been predicted from eternity past that Judas would betray Christ and he would then therefore not be counted among the disciples. He's not even in the community of the redeemed. He is a false believer. Now, the other reason we know that Jesus would have forgiven Judas is because Jesus is kind. He is meek. He is always ready to forgive. He's always ready to extend compassion and benevolence even to his enemies. But again, I suspect that most of us would lose our composure in a similar situation. Imagine this. You have a thousand people armed to their teeth to come and get you. You would panic like I would too, unless we would pour our heart to the Father like Jesus did moments before, according to verse 32. And what the lesson is for us is this, church. When we pursue the will of the Father above all else, because that's what Jesus was doing here in the previous scene. He was saying, Lord, if possible, let this cup pass for me. However, your will be done, not mine. So when you imitate that and we are called upon to imitate Christ, we, we, we pursue the will of God above our own comfort. We say, Lord, be glorified in my suffering if that's the case. When we do this, we will experience the peace that transcends all understanding, not even the sting of betrayal and abandonment will have any effect on our commitment to the Father. Because the Father will comfort you to go through these periods of time. And when you do this, when you are filled to the brim with the comfort from the Father, because you have been pursuing His will above all else, remember, He is faithful to do far beyond everything we ask or think. When you're asking, God, please, I want to do your will, align my heart with your will, guess what? As a bonus, He will comfort your heart to pursue His will, and He will open doors and equip you, because His grace is sufficient. When you do this, again, the sting of abandonment, the pain of broken relationships will not affect your relationship with the Father. That is exactly what's going on here. You will suppress the desire to retaliate. In fact, you will experience a fellowship with God so intense that seeking justice to your backstabber would distract you from the mission that God has given you. And you say, Lord, I'm too busy pursuing your will. I'm not going to pursue justice for my betrayer. I'm going to let you take care of that. I'm not going to even defend myself because I am busy doing what you have called me to do. And by the way, when you seek the will of God, friends, people will betray you. It's not a matter of if. It's a matter of when you'll experience betrayal. Why? Because you are identifying with the men of sorrows. You are identifying with your master. And the Bible says you're not greater than your master. So people will betray you, sometimes unintentionally, other times with the purpose of harming you. It will hurt, of course, but it should not affect your joy and peace. Just like Judas' audacity here had no effect on Christ's resolve to endure the cross. And check this out, church. For the joy set before him, according to Hebrews 12, verse 2. See, he was fixed on doing the will of the Father and the joy that comes with the sense of, man, I have accomplished the mission. And you can imagine the heart of Christ when he cried out from the cross, it is finished. Meaning, I have accomplished what the Father has told me to do. It is paid in full. I've, I've accomplished redemption for sinners. It's paid in full. So that's the audacity of the foe here. But let's consider the next development of this scene. And remember, we're looking at the sovereignty of God, the obedience of Jesus, and the reliability of Scripture. I want you to see the anger of the follower. Verses 51 through 55, the anger of the follower. Now, 
When one of the disciples got a little too excited about this, I got a little too defensive. And can you guess who did this? Who cut the ear of the servant? Well, John identifies him as Peter. John 18, verse 10. Good old Peter, impetuous, impulsive man here. Like many of us, here we identify with Peter. He acts before he thinks. He speaks before he thinks. And here he is, again, acting out, thinking that he could take on a thousand people. But Jesus rebuked him and assured him that his arrest was part of the plan, determined before the foundation of the world, and it was even prophesied by the Word of God. So Jesus is telling Peter, put your sword back, man. This is part of the plan. You don't realize here, I'm not a victim. I am in control. I am voluntarily giving my life to save you. So put your sword back. And he also reminded his vigilante disciple here that the Father could dispatch legions, plural, legions of angels, to intervene. And why does he say this? Because moments ago, the father had dispatched one angel to comfort Jesus, again in Luke 22, verse 43. But let me give you more details of what happened here. John 18, verses 4 through 9. Jesus, knowing all the things that were coming upon him, went forth and said to them, again, to the multitude, Whom do you seek? They answered him, Jesus the Nazarene. He said to them, I am he. And Judas, also who was betraying him, was standing with them. So when he said to them, I am he, they drew back and fell to the ground. Therefore he again asked them, Whom do you seek? And they said, Jesus the Nazarene. Jesus answered, I told you that I am he. So if you seek me, let these go their way. To fulfill the word which he spoke, Of those whom you have given me, I lost no one. So here it is, church. We have Jesus Christ identifying himself by his title of divinity, identifying with the Father, committing, quote-unquote, the act of blasphemy, except in this case it's not blasphemy, it's true. He is God, he is divine, he is one of the persons of the Trinity. And Jesus Christ is repeating what he said in John 8, verse 58. Before Abraham was born, I am. So he's giving them his identity. Obviously, the only reaction of his enemies is to fall to their faces in terror. Because they are staying in front of God. They're staring the God-man in his eyes and they're, they're trying to arrest him. And the only reason they'll be able to do that is because God has already allowed for that to happen. He actually not only allowed but preordained before the foundation of the world. And that's the only reason they're allowed to do that. So Jesus is saying here and showing to everybody that he is in control. He can speak a word and his enemies will fall to the ground. And Peter, obviously emboldened by what he just saw, thought that he could deliver the deliverer. Think about that. He thought that he could save his Savior. He thought that Jesus needed his help. And Jesus said, Peter, it's not your job to help me. If I needed help, angels will do that for me. Your job is not to help me. You can't do it. You can't save me. I am here to save you. So Matthew describes this weapon that Peter had here using a Greek word, makarion, for a dagger. This is not the Roman sword meant for slashing. This is a smaller dagger meant for stabbing. He didn't even have the the proper weapon. He was ready to prevent the crucifixion of the Lord yet again. He was trying to do that verbally, remember, a couple of chapters ago. And Jesus told him, get behind me, Satan. You're thinking like, man, I have to go to the cross. And here is Peter now thinking, this is the time. Jesus can just speak a word and then we will prevail. So let me prove my loyalty to him. Because remember, Peter swore allegiance to Christ. And Christ told Peter, before the rooster crows, you'll deny me three times. And Peter said, this is my chance to prove him wrong. 
Now, before we get too judgmental, let's consider that sometimes we act just like him. Now, we don't carry the sword. We don't slash anyone, hopefully. <laughs> but we think that Jesus needs our rescuing rather than the other way around. And we articulate that thought in something like this. And see if you have ever reasoned with Christ like this. Perhaps not verbally. We would never articulate that, not audibly for our brothers and sisters to hear us, but in our hearts, perhaps, we do this. Jesus, obviously, you are struggling to help me in this. Your timing is wrong. You can't even fix the situation here. You can't change my life. I've been asking you for this. So you're obviously struggling to keep the situation under control. I'm going to get ahead of you for a moment here and take matters into my own hands. Do we not think that God has the universe under control? Listen, in Acts 17 verse 25, we're told that God is not served by human hands as though he needed anything since he himself gives to all people life and breath and all things. See, God doesn't receive anything from us. He gives everything to us. He doesn't need anything from us. He doesn't need your worship to feel better about himself. Have you ever thought about that? He is not less divine if you don't worship him. You are the one who needs 100% of his intervention in your life. And same thing for me. Your next heartbeat is by his grace and provision. So we need everything from him. He needs nothing from us. So the point here that Scripture wants to tell us is this. Jesus is, is all right. He's got things covered. He doesn't need your intervention or mine. We need to obey Him. That is our calling. Our calling is not to take up arms or get violent and try to serve Jesus by the sword. Our calling is to love Him and obey Him and follow Him. Look at verse 52 here. Put your sword back into its place. I want you to know something here, church. Jesus is not teaching pacifism, in case you, you thought about this. Jesus is not saying here nations should never go to war to defend themselves. That's not the point. He's not teaching that at all. And he's not teaching anything against self-defense. That is not the point. He wants Peter to know that the state has divine permission to inflict capital punishment on murderers. I want you to know something here. Peter was going for this guy's head, all right? He missed. And Jesus is saying here, put your sword back, man, because if you kill someone, you're going to be accused of murder, and the state is going to execute you rightfully. But let me give you another reason why Jesus told Peter to put the sword away. Punishing evildoers is outside of the realm of the church. We understand that? God has not called us to punish evildoers. And Peter here is acting... As, as a representative of the church in embryonic form. The church has not been officially inaugurated yet until Acts 2. And here you, we have an apostle here acting as a vigilante. And the lesson for us is very clear. God has not commissioned us to advance the kingdom by violence. He has not commissioned us to advance the kingdom by force or by the sword. It is not our job to punish evildoers. It is our job to warn them. To repent and come to faith in Christ. It is our job to love our enemies. In fact, we must overcome evil with good. Romans 12 verse 21 says, So therefore, church, how should we respond to our culture's relentless attacks on Christ? And, and we're talking about the specific assaults on his view of the family, assaults on his view of the unborn, his view of life, his view of parents and the role of parents and the role of government and etc., how do we respond to all of that? Not by taking up arms, 
but by unsheathing another sword, one that is living and active and sharper than any two-edged sword and piercing as far as the division of soul and spirit of both joints and marrow and able to judge the thoughts and intentions of the heart. Hebrews 4 verse 12. See, Peter's sword cannot divide between soul and spirit and does not discern the thoughts and the intentions of the heart. This sword here does. And that is the one we must unsheath and use it. We must master the use of that sword, not like Peter who had no idea what he was doing. He was aiming at the head and got the ear. No, we need to train and be trained in using this sword right here, a much more effective weapon. You will protect your heart and your mind a lot better, and you will inflict greater damage to the kingdom of darkness when you read, meditate on, speak, paraphrase, sing, quote, teach, proclaim, and live the Word of God. That's a better weapon that Jesus talks about in verse 54 when He says, Peter, you're using the wrong weapon. How then will the Scriptures be fulfilled? He says, this is the better sword. And which leads us to the um, next point and the last one in, in our lesson here. We looked at the audacity of the foe, the anger of the follower. The next development here in this scene is the abandonment of the friends, verses 55 to 56. Now, Jesus' captors here unknowingly fulfilled biblical prophecy. They thought that they were serving a greater purpose. They thought that they were serving the Sanhedrin or the state because Jesus is a criminal. He's, he's rising up against the, against the state. He's an insurrectionist, whatever. But no, in reality, they're fulfilling biblical prophecy. They came prepared for an insurrection, but Jesus offered no resistance, not because he couldn't do it. He could. He, again, he, he would speak, and these guys would die on the spot. He gave a little sample of that, but that's not the point. He is voluntarily giving up his life. People don't take the life of Christ. He voluntarily gave his life for the salvation of sinners. He says in John 10, verses 17 through 18, I lay down my life so that I may take it up again. No one has taken it away from me, but I lay it down on my own initiative. I have the authority to lay it down, and I have the authority to take it up again. So the arresting party here, the mob, is completely useless, and God can render them useless just by saying a word. And check this out, church. Even the abandonment of his friends was predetermined by God. It happened right on schedule. However, this fact here, that the reality of that, that God retains control at all times, doesn't mean that we shouldn't remain on the alert to prevent a similar reaction. And what I mean by that is walking away from Christ, okay? Because you and I are prone to wonder. It doesn't take much for us to panic. We're sheep. That is the reason why the Bible describes followers of Christ as sheep, even though Even believers out there say, I'm not a sheep, referring to the government or the rebellion against the government. We are sheep. That's exactly how the Bible describes us. We belong to the great shepherd. Sheep are not very intelligent animals. They're docile. They are prone to wonder. They can't even look up. They have to rely on what they hear, the word of the shepherd. That's why Jesus says, my sheep, hear my voice. Our vision is limited. And we're always seeking greener pastures. And Jesus says, here's a greener pasture right here. What are you doing out there? So we should remain on the alert to prevent walking away from our good shepherd. Even today, Christians who walk away from Jesus do so not because of the fear of their lives, but because of the fear of the social cost that is getting higher by the year. And I praise God for that because God always purifies His church during times of persecution. We are not supposed to be in a center of society. 
There's no such thing as a national Christianity. There are, there's a Christian people, not a Christian nation. And that Christian people is made of people from every tribe and tongue. So I have a feeling that these days that we've enjoyed for the last 200 years are coming to an end. And again, I don't panic because this may be the greatest blessing of the Western church because counterfeit believers, church, have no reason to stick around. Do you understand that? False believers, superficial people who identify with Christ have no reason to stick around when a society slowly and gradually outlaws Christianity, which is what's happening here. The Lord will purify His church and will make us stronger, better able to carry out the message from the margins of society. You know why I know that? Because that's exactly what happened in the book of Acts. The marginalized group of 12 people, fishermen, most of them, one former tax collector, changed the world because of the power of God. Do you think God couldn't do that again? We will be tempted to defect, of course. We will be tempted to abandon Christ when the, the going gets tough, of course. Some believers will succumb to the temptation. And when they do, we pray for them. We go after them and say, come back. We seek their restoration and say, here, let's encourage one another. Let's stand firm. And let's together beg God to equip us to stand firm during times of persecution. If you have questions or comments, we'd love to hear from you. Our email address is radio at gbcsalem.org. Or you can visit our website, truthwithgrace.org, for more information about our church and this media ministry. Plus, we're always looking for people just like you to help us spread the gospel around the world. This broadcast is provided to you at no cost to the generosity of financial and prayer supporters of Truth With Grace. Please feel free to share it, but please don't charge money for it or edit it in any way without the written consent of Grace Baptist Church. Until next time, this is Truth With Grace.